Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. So welcome, everybody. We're going to be having a book launch about a wonderful new book called Perceptions of Climate Change from North India. This book has very recently been published by Rowledge, and we're privileged today to be joined by the author, Orsa Kvanid. She is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Oslo. And we're also going to have some questions and discussion with Orsa, which will be conducted by Dr. Rita Brara who is a senior researcher at the Institute of Economic Growth in Delhi. She's also the editor of a journal called Contributions to Indian Sociology. I'm Duncan McCargo. I'm director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and a professor of political science here at the University of Copenhagen. And this is an event that the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies is very happy to be co-hosting with the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. We are going to start our discussion of the book. And at this point, I'd like to invite Rita to say something about the book and give us a little bit of, of background and context. And then we'll go over to Orsa to hear more about her book. Thank you, Duncan. And congratulations, Orsa. It is an absolute pleasure to introduce Orsa's book today. It is based on a village study set in the Shivalik hills of the lower Himalayas. Of course, we're all concerned with um, climate change. And, uh, you know, an early Club of Rome report said good planets are hard to find and we have only this earth. But uh, what also does remarkably well for us is put a human face on the subject in this very fine-grained ethnographic account. For a start, she shows that terms such as climate change and global warming are not part of the local lexicon at all. In fact, these terms are associated with school curricula, ironically. And as she points out, these are terms used by well-connected people in well-connected places. On the other hand, and at the same time, what she does show is the impact of climate change at the local level. And here it's reflected in irregular rainfall patterns, landslides, and uh, land degradation. These are very much part of uh, lived experience in the village. And here also brings out how the men, the bigger landholders, and the higher castes in fact, get more out of state intervention that are intended to enhance uh, soil and water conservation. But in a sense, the ways old and familiar of how development and environmental programs have uh, run in India continue unabated. And disappointingly, they do not work for the poorer or the vulnerable sections. As the study moves on, Osa compares her experience of climate change in developing countries vis-a-vis developed countries, and I think she does that really well. She clarifies that it would be reductionist to regard environmental perceptions as uh, spiritual in the East and not so in the West, and that if people want to change their behavior in the wake of climate change or do not want to change it as it happens, this is not peculiar to India. She reiterates that uh, facts pertaining to climate change in Norway, her home country, for instance, are often met, as some of you might know, with straight denial. So the argument that emerges from her book is categorical. 
Climate change materializes in a context that is sociopolitical and economic. And her penetrating account sits at the intersection of uh, political ecology and uh, what she refers to as cultural sense-making, both in, at her field site and beyond. Again, you know, on another note, after the more recent forays into postmodern ethnographies, I must say that I find it very refreshing to be back on anthropological home ground and complemented here by the contemporary concern with climate change. And just perhaps on this note, I would wind up and ask Osa to tell us about her work in her own words next. And I want also to recount what drew her to this research. What got you interested, Osa? Studying people's perceptions in the face of scientists affirming climate change as an objective scientific fact. Thank you, Rita. And um, first of all, before I go on to answer your question, I would just first very much like to thank those of you who has logged on today. It means a lot to me and uh, to Nias, Duncan and McCargo and Anna Brookney-Johansson uh, for organizing this with the Norwegian Network of South Asia Cities, Kenneth Bohansen. Um, I'm very grateful for this opportunity. And of course, I want to thank you, Rita, for reading my book. I am enormously grateful and happy that you took the time and your busy schedule at this point of time. Uh, I mean, our hearts are all bleeding for India under the COVID pandemic right now. And I'm glad to see that you're here and you're fine. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm so thankful that you have read the whole book and for your wonderful introduction. So thank you. I'll try to the best of my ability to answer your question. Because what got me into this research, that is a very big question, because many things did. And as you started out here, I mean, first of all, it's the scale of the global situation that we're in, the state of our environment, and the probably quite destructive consequences of climate change for all of us. It's the uh, enormousness of uh, climate change as both a physical thing and a discursive thing. Uh, it transcends national borders. It transcends history. But what I think what was intriguing me was it, it came, uh, when I started to study this in 2011, climate change, change didn't seem to have an ethic. It didn't seem to have a morale. And I was interested in how that was ascribed by humans. That was very intriguing to me. I guess I really wanted to know uh, or understand better at least whether we are in the middle of a paradigmatic shift in a way in how we view our humanity how people negotiate the relationship between themselves and society. So that, that there's a big curiosity on a contemporary issue, you might say. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's what really drew me in. But then, of course, why approach it the way I did? I guess I have had an uneasiness about climate change as a discourse, because there's a, an urgency to the situation as you, as you started with, right? Mm -hmm. To awake and alert people all over the world, not only in India, but everywhere, showing us with climate science, you know, how does that sit with people? We know science can inform us about the complex relations and practices that fuel carbon emissions, right? But mm -hmm. we haven't really agreed, neither, and here I'm borrowing quite shamelessly on, on Mike Holm, that you might know, who's mm -hmm. written a lot about why we disagree about climate change, but we haven't really agreed the way forward, nor the goal itself. What is it really that we want to achieve after we have made everyone aware in, in the sense of sensitizing people to the changes that we're witnessing and trying to configure how we see the chains of causality? Where, where are we going? And that is also a debate that really, really interests me. 
Yeah, I can see that Hulme has been important for your thought, but you also discussed the writings of Michel Foucault, Anna Singh, Henrietta Moore, and of course, many more have influenced your thinking. Oh, yes. Trying to avoid, uh, you know, summing up the whole uh, list here. Uh, yes, of course, uh, Foucault, Arun Agraval as well, a lot. The concept of governmentality and environmentality. I think we'll come a little bit back to that later, though. But there's so many, as you said uh, uh, or mentioned earlier, there's there's many um, conversation going on that has been both inside and outside academia that's been very inspirational mm-hmm. for my way of thinking. But mm-hmm. I, I dreaded a bit this question as well, to be honest, because I think uh, that the conversation has been going on for a long time without me listening in. I have actually been out of the academia world for quite some time mm-hmm. due to childbearing reasons and other things. So whatever conversations there are right now, I'm kind of rediscovering them in light of my current postdoctoral project. Transustain, it's called. It's, uh, you should all uh, check it out. Uh, it's very mm-hmm. exciting. But I did, yeah. I did note some uh, some changes though that I thought maybe you know it'd be interesting to comment on. Yes. Yeah, if and and maybe see whether you had some of the same observations because when I left off in the academic world studying climate change research in the social sciences, it was all about mitigation and adaptation. It was finding mm-hmm. practical solutions to social and ecological crises. And there was very little ethnographies at that time. This was around 2011. Mm-hmm. So it was Kari Marie and Urgos living in denial about knowledge of climate change. And a little later, I don't know if you read it, Peter Rudiak Gold on modernity mm-hmm. and climate change perception from the Pacific Islands. Mm-hmm. And of course, Julie Cruikshank. So it was more being inspired, I guess, by ethnographical accounts of climate change. There weren't very many when I started. There were, mm-hmm. there were a few and they were really good. But then launching myself into that kind of position, trying to ethnographically grasp something so analytically complex and distant as climate change, I needed to position myself theoretically somewhere along, you know, the nature culture debate. Mm -hmm. So what's Mm -hmm. happened now is that when I came back, all the Anthropocene conversations that had happened, and they were not just peripheral or marginal in the anthropological community anymore. They had kind of launched onto a much bigger stage. There are genuine conversations outside the whole of academia right now around what it is to be human. And this relates directly to that ethical framework that I observed earlier around 2010 to 2011, the ethical framework that climate change conversations were lacking. So you find that in the Anthropocene discussions and, and I found them very rewarding, but to be honest, I can't, since I've been away for some bit, I find it's a quite big back catalog to get into there. Yeah, so uh, let's turn to the book. Uh, So I start with the prologue. I must confess, I find them riveting. Also because so much of what animates the book comes across in the prologue and yours is revelatory. You relate this absolutely cataclysmic incident of how your living quarters were almost washed down the hill in the course of a landslide. And uh, it reminded me of Clifford Geertz's study of the cockfight, which turned out to be a defining experience for his study of Bali culture. So I was wondering if you'd like to recount how this cataclysmic incident actually encapsulated for you what it meant to be living in a village under precarious environmental conditions. Yes. Yeah. For those of you that didn't read the book, something happened. It was actually not as with Gertz with the Balinese cockfight. It happened really early on, as far as I can remember. He was there and he observed the cockfight. 
And the police mm-hmm. came and rounded them up. I think he became a part of the local village community in a way after that cockfight. And he, yeah, yeah right. as far as I remember anyway. But it, what happened to me, though, was not as cool and dramatic. And it happened very, very late as well. It was, you know, the monsoon had started and it started raining heavily. And I was sitting in the toilets doing my business. And then all of a sudden mm-hmm. I hear the sound and it's it's really immediate. I can it's not very loud, but I, it's like a thunderclap. But it, if it was a thunderclap, it should have been much closer. I feel that it's closer. So when I open the door and I go outside, I just see that, oh, what used to be a patio outside my door is now gone. It's gone down the hill. And I look up and I see, you know, the family's coming. And but what, I think what happened there at that moment was more, of course, sensitizing me to the acuteness of the situation and how fragile and how it feels when the land under your feet can shift at any time. It becomes very, very, you know, embodied in a way. But for me, I think it told, it did so much more about how I looked at what I wanted to study did more to me as a researcher the questions that I started to ask because I was already feeling very much part of the village I had a a small a baby with me a son and he was the world's best door opener so I I was always welcome in any house which was very very nice and practical but it was more a reflection on how I viewed their agency if you understand what I mean I I can try to explain before like during the first six or seven months during the field I was looking at this climate change issue and I was looking at how climate change influenced the village and I asked the people around me what do you think about the weather changing who's responsible for that what do you think about the future what do you think about the past and they would give me all all of the time answers like it would be in the hands of Bhagwan and it seemed to me that they didn't have feeling of agency that there was nothing they could do it also was about you know the, the health of the forest or it was nothing they could do, really. You know, it was up to Bhagwan. But what happened when this ha- when this landslide happened was that uh, obviously I started asking, "Shit, why does this happen? What will you do?" And since I already knew them and I they already trusted me, I was included into like the ritual response to the landslide, and it enabled me to ask different questions questions that I didn't think about asking before. And also, since they already knew me a bit, it was perhaps easier to open up. And I could see that they had a lot of agency in navigating. You know the they don't only try to, as we all do, we try to um, improve our living conditions by mediating those relations that we have and using the power that we have. And for them, one of these ways was it, it's not just, you know, the bakish to the Indian officer or, or filling out all these forms and traveling to the distant offices. Mm-hmm. It's, it's other rituals as well that mm-hmm. with the devis and the devtas and everyone that, you know, mm-hmm. you mediate with the, the sources of power that you can. And, and they appeared to me as as having much more agency than I thought they had to begin with so it mm-hmm. did something with my perception I think mm-hmm. okay did that did that make sense yes yes it does I think it comes out very vividly in your book and even in your description right now and I'm going to push you on that a little further a key concept in your work is awareness. And uh, I found that really intriguing because, you know, there's a sense in which uh, the way you preface your chapters is very ecosensitive and very aware. You bring out the sensations, the affects, the agrarian practices associated with a succession of seasons. And I wondered if, you know, this ethnographic mode made it possible for you to, in a sense, document chronic challenges over a whole agrarian cycle because you're looking so closely at the seasons. And also in the sense of uh, being aware 
you were able to bring out differences between the villagers in their capacities to cope with circumstances. And that's also very important. Villagers, core villagers are not all the same. And you were remarkably sensitive to the fact that, yes, for some, the life chances are of one sort. And for others, those life chances are foreclosed. So again, I must say, I'd like to probe why you picked on this concept of awareness in the sense that elsewhere in the book, you also talk about the fact that state interventions and state programs often viewed villagers as unaware and people without knowledge. But you make out a very strong and reflexive case for unpacking the concept of awareness. And I must say, I'd like you to, you know, dwell a little on why you picked on the concept and the significance it had for you in your work. Thank you, Rita. That's a very good question. And I think it's particularly good because I, I actually didn't think about using awareness as a concept until now, really, <laughs> because what I really wanted to do was shy away from using the concept of knowledge, which you said mm -hmm. so nicely that we are positioned in different ways to get access to certain kind of knowledges about the world. And I think what I tried to do with using awareness was unintentionally really to try to encapsulate that when you are talking about only knowledge, like we are uh, transferring, transmitting knowledge now to you about the state of climate change and your role in it, we can mm -hmm. pretend that it's amoral and that it it's, can exist separate mm -hmm. from everything else. But what is really at stake here is that we're trying to build an awareness around climate change and to be aware is to be sensitive to all those intricate relations that have kind of made things appear as they do right now. And, and also uh, to all the intricate relations that might be necessary to get us out of it. It gets, I, don't, I didn't, don't know if I did that very well in my book, but I mean, to be aware of something is to have knowledge right of something. And mm -hmm. I come from a tradition like in envir environmental anthropology, this knowledge debate has been quite big. You, you probably know of it. Mm -hmm. where we have a technical knowledge and you have indigenous knowledge and you have ecological mm -hmm. knowledge and what have you. But I found that when I went into the, the center of it all, when what is it really that they should be aware of? What, what is it really? What, what kind of relations is it that they don't see? I find myself drawing much more on, on for example, David Turnbull use mm -hmm. of knowledge where knowledge is knowledge really. It's just different modes. You have the more technical form and the more practical form as in Metis and Techna. I think perhaps that when you see knowledge as, as also with Foucault, as, as entangled with power, then talking about mm -hmm. awareness is to indicate that this is about something more. It's a more mm -hmm. complete package when you're trying to make someone aware of climate change. I'm just going to make you aware of this fact that, you know. So mm -hmm. I just found it to be a better concept than knowledge in a way. Yeah. I think you did a marvelous job with it, Oscar. Um, came out my... quite confusing now, but... <laughs> Could I ask you... What is your perception of how an anthropologist should relate to interdisciplinary thinking about climate in the sense that uh, the IPCC and other national bodies are encouraging you to think about it in that interdisciplinary way? So what would be your take? And secondly, you know, in the wake of prevailing climate concerns, do you think anthropologists should step up their dialogue with climate? practitioners love to hear your views on that as well yeah. those are uh, thank you these are very big questions i don't know if you have uh, uh, i wish i had a really good answer to them but i 
you know, I have only my own experiences to draw on here. But I think, okay, how should an anthropologist respond? I don't know. I think. How do you respond? You're an anthropologist. I, I, I wanted, I, there's several things you could do. You could again engage in politics or you can write really good essays, I guess. That, what I tried to do was I tried to draw people in with ethnography, which was the magic that anthropology had on me. If you write really good at ethnography, which I have attempted to do, but I, I have not done as well as just imagine uh, Lila Abulugud. She wrote a book called Vile Sentiments around 1999, 1998, something like that. I have never looked at a veiled woman with the same eyes after reading that because uh -huh. her ethnography, it's not theoretically super heavy, uh -huh. but it's so vivid and you get drawn into other lives and you can borrow somebody else's eyes for a bit and it can change your perception of the world. So if anthropologists can do that, if you know that they can actually do that, a good anthropologist can do that. And that's like what I would like to strive for doing. But then again, it's only for academics, isn't it, to read anthropology? And that won't change the world, will it? I mean, changing one's vision is, is good, but... And then there's the second part of your question, which is how to engage in these transdisciplinary conversations, because... And with climate practitioners, you know, with NGOs. And with, yes. I've tried to do a little bit of both. I find the latter to engage with the practitioners is easier mm -hmm. and that anthropologists should, of course, do that if they are able to. Able to perhaps just as much as, as um, someone has to pay you for doing that. And I think that's a part of the problem here. <laughs> <laughs> of <course>. Because ideally, <laughs> you know, I don't go and offer my all the time. But I <laughs> So I think uh, we'll pick up some questions next. And I'd like to thank you for your really sensitive and thought-provoking comments. Yeah, we'll take on the questions. Amita would like to unmute. So there's Amita Babiska. Hello, hi. First of all, Osa, thank you so much for writing this book, which I look forward to reading as soon as I can. Thanks for the discussion, Rita and Osa both. I had a question which comes out of my own work in rural central India in the Narmada Valley. And I was wondering whether, you know, you have encountered similar things. My observation is that with climate change, the standard sort of expectation that I had, that people who are already vulnerable will become even more vulnerable. You know, we will just see a deepening of inequality seems to be a little bit turned around because I found that people who were much more precarious and who, you know, went away for migrant work to other parts of uh, the country actually are more resilient because they are not as tied to a land-based livelihood as those cultivators who are primarily earning their income from agriculture. And in some ways, therefore, people who were earlier better off because they were farmers, they had access to land, they were making a living off the land for at least nine, 10 months of the year, now are actually much more vulnerable because they don't have these multiple strategies of gaining a livelihood that the more migrant, mobile, tribal, indigenous people in the area, the Adivasis do. So I just wondered, you know, comparing notes with you, with your fieldwork, did you find that people who had a more sort of diversified portfolio in terms of livelihoods are more likely to cope better with climate change? Are they just more knowledgeable? Do they have more resources or is it going to just worsen inequalities? 
Thank you, Amita, for a very good question. It's so interesting to be able to compare notes. And thank you for coming today. And yes, I did observe the very same thing. I think at first I was really struck by, you know, I thought, I assumed by what I know of the Indian caste system, etc., that the Rajputs would have the best possible chance to make something good out of this situation. But it turns out that Rajput, in my case, in this village, they were, of course, land-based and agricultural, and they had so many obligations to keep that land so that the Lohar, which was another caste present in the village, that were, did more, um, actually, they were making windowsills. So they worked as carpenters, which was not there. They're uh, categorized as a other backward caste, I think. But they did it much better, if you like, in a more economical sense, because they could travel around as lorry drivers, or they could go into town and get kind of all sorts of different work, they weren't as tied to the land and as uh, living of the land becomes harder and harder, the landholders, they were in a, in a more difficult situation. But then again, that is also like an observation with nuances, if you like, as the Rajputs then in having a higher reputation, if you like, also had better connections. But that would that could have been just for my village, you know, that they had a, a better access to, <laughs> through bribes or not through bribes, to powerful people that could help them out of a precarious uh, situation. But I, I did see it, but then I don't know how, how like common it is or whether it was only in my village. But it still goes for something, that high cost status as well. Thank you so much. We have another question. Yes, there is Satvik Biswas. Can you read that also? Okay, the question was that whether if I could comment upon the dilemma, if there was any, of immediate gratification of dire needs of life, such as firewood, excessive fertilizer, etc., and the awareness that people know the harm that we have done and doing to nature. Yes, to bring you into the field a bit, yes. There was absolutely, and I think I have a, almost a whole chapter in my book about the awareness of the harm that their practices inflicted upon the environment and the people around them. So what was really important for me in the book was to get out that even if they didn't know about the analytical concept of climate change per se, they, they, did, they hadn't familiarized, they were very much aware, if you like, of all the intricate relations that had brought them into the state that they were today. So you had the declining soil quality, the dependency on fertilizers, the pesticide of the land. They knew that it was harmful. They were afraid of getting ill. And um, so, yes, I, the short answer that, that there was definitely an awareness and they lived in that dilemma and they had to navigate that di dilemma every day. Um, there was a farmer, I re recall, he was sitting and, and smoking a beady and, and he said, the land is like me. It's become addicted to something that I know is bad. And if I stop, then the crops will fail. And next year I will not have enough food to support my family. So I cannot stop. And this was a cycle that they were very much aware of. And it's the same with forests. I mean, they needed to get the firewood because it was cold, they needed to heat the water and they also needed it for food, of course, for every day. And they didn't have the money to buy gas, not knowing really whether buying gas is more sustainable really than getting the luckily the firewood from the forest. But it, all, it was also very well known that the red care, kair, kair tree, I'm not really sure if I'm saying it right in Indian kair. It's a very valuable tree that was under special kind of regulation and protection in this area because people cut it, because it's really good for firewood. They know these dilemmas and they know it's harmful, but they need it. So what, what can you do? We have the luxury, the really big luxury of choosing away things, but they don't have that. So oh, there's another question. If even 
push you further what do we have at the end in terms of ideas of justice and climate change yes that was something that has become really prudent and when i came back to the climate change uh, studying climate change as a social phenomenon the ideas of environmental justice and i think this is a very important subject because we need to i think redefine not only who we are in the relations to others and the environment as the anthropocene discussions do but we need to seriously consider what kind of goal is it that we are expected to work against. Right now, it's kind of a see, hairy target of sustainability, but I'm not really sure which sustainability and for whom, because we know that if we are removing some goods from one side, then we take it for someone, give it for some others. It's all about distribution, isn't it? We need to know what goal we're working towards to be able to talk in a good way about how to get there. That would be a super interesting to do more of. <laughs> Oh, Pamela, hello. I saw your question there. Yes, expand on the concept of Baguan and people's explanations for change. When people ask me very complicated questions that I know that there's a very complicated answer to, I sometimes say that it's, you know, we'll just have to trust fate or something. And my friend who's very religious will say that it will be in the hands of God. Of course it is. When you have a moral and ethical system built around the faith, uh, that there is something governing our past and future and present. But then again, <laughs> when I went into the more detailed everyday practices of religiousness, Bhagwan disappeared a bit. And what I saw was people trying to negotiate with the numerous devis and devtas and demons and what have you that are some are physically present in the village some are a bit more far away so in everyday religiousness or everyday spirituality you don't believe that these agents have an effect on your life you know it when you when you are a religious person so that's why it's necessary for you to mediate those relationships every day because you know that if you do it right then you know good things will happen or if you do it wrong then wrong things will happen so in people's explanations for change, I think Bhagwan is the ultimate force that can topple all this over because there's an energy there which you can try to influence, but you don't really know what your chances are. And that's how I felt that Bhagwan appeared when I talked about past and future and current problems with my co-villagers. That was a big, uh, very messy answer, I guess, Pamela. I don't know if it made sense. Hopefully it did. I don't see any further questions. So on that note... Farewell and goodbye and also you can see everyone's really engaged with the talk and I'm sure they're looking forward to laying their hands on the book. Well, um, I'm really, really glad that you took the time, Rita. Yes. And thank you all. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.